Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Later in the pod, you'll hear Tommy's interview with friend of the pod, John Legend, who's doing great work to get people to pay more attention to critical elections for local prosecutors across the country, something that usually goes under the radar. Uh, we've also got a lot of news to cover today. We're going to talk about Roseanne. We're going to talk about the president's addiction to obstructing justice. And we're going to do a special segment about the potential jungle primary disaster in California. But first, Dan, how about a little announcement from you? Yes. Baby Watch is over. Yes. Wednesday night, as you guys were on stage at Radio City Music Hall, uh, our daughter was born. Kyla Adele Pfeiffer was born. Uh, Everyone is happy and healthy. It has been an amazing week. I tried to think about how can you talk about your child without sounding corny? And then I realized there's actually no way to do it, and there's a reason for that. And she's amazing. Hallie's doing great. We're super excited and happy, and we appreciate all the people who sent very nice uh, tweets wondering about the status of the baby over the last few days here. I thought about announcing it on Twitter, and then I remembered Twitter as a cesspool, and I thought I would do it here uh, in our nice coastal elite liberal bubble with people we like you're a father this is so exciting it's amazing i it is it's a the whole thing is amazing it's hard to believe it's real but kyla is awesome cute sweet uh ton of personality uh it's really she's napping right now so we can do the pod uh but things are great at home when you uh when you sent us the picture which is uh very very cute um we were about to do our boston calling show and i was like do you think we can now finally announce on stage that Dan's a father? And then I was like, no, we should probably let him do that. <laughs> He's not. I don't see it on Twitter yet. I don't see it on Instagram. It did occur to me that if the baby had come a little earlier, you could have done it from the stage at Radio City. But I felt like, let's just make sure everyone's happy and healthy before we worry about the rollout strategy. That was why. Well, we missed you uh, very much on the road. Uh, we had some some good shows uh, Elijah told me, anyone who wants to see the full Radio City show, that includes you, Dan. I, I know that's what you want to do with your time. Um, go to YouTube.com slash Crooked Media and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And uh, we have the full show up. So check it out. It was uh, it was a good one. Yeah, the show, I, I've listened to Radio City. I have not caught up on Boston yet. Uh, but the Radio City show was awesome. Super cool. It's an amazing thing. Uh for our little podcast and your media company that we got to, that you guys got to perform at Radio City Musical, that's pretty pretty great. Yeah, though um, when you hear the Boston show, the the game that we played in Boston is definitely one of my favorites because we got to uh, break out our Boston accents. And Sam Power and Duvall tried their best to keep up. Um. <laughs> well, I would say as it relates to the Boston thing, uh, 
my friends, uh, our friends have a two-year-old, and they were listening to the Boston show in the car, and the two-year-old heard the word Democrat and started, and Charlie started chanting Democrat, and the, and the, which everyone was very excited about. That's better. That's better than them hearing another word and chanting that. <laughs> but but then he started chanting "fuck the Yankees," and oh, no. everyone had to re- reevaluate whether they, they could listen to the pot in the car. Although they are Red Sox fans, so in that sense, it wasn't terrible. But it's probably not a phrase they want him to bring to school today. Oh, I always hate hearing that. Um, okay, maybe I'll try to clean up my language. Maybe. Um, you have any book things to announce? I mean, you had the birth of your child. That seems like a big one, but I know you also have a book yeah, that... coming out time to the birth <laughs> of your child. <laughs> book it, book comes out uh, June 19th, as everyone knows, and I've talked about many times. We are in the final stretch here. Uh, people have been um, really amazing from our friends of the pod, supporting the book, tweeting about the book, letting me know you bought the book. Uh I have very ambitious goals uh, for how many books I hope we can sell by publication date. And that is because I have a fragile ego and I'm very competitive. But it's also because, as we've said before, a portion of the proceeds from every book sold between now and June 18th, uh, which is the last day of pre-sales, will go to our friends at Swing Left who are doing such important work. And so I would encourage everyone to continue to uh, buy the book. My publisher had a... Very, had a, I had a suggestion to my publisher that we could get to 10,000 total books pre-sold, and that's just, that's books in kind like ebooks and uh, regular books. Uh, he, my publisher thought that was impossible. I have great faith in the uh, fans of the pod. We are above 7,000 today, so I think we can get to 10,000 in the next few weeks, and then we can give a nice check to our friends at Swing Left when the book comes out. Buy the so, book, everyone. Thank you for what you for buying the book. Thank thank you for. Supporting the book, and uh, now go find some friends to buy the book. And I will say, I'm about halfway through it. It's fantastic. I talk to you for an hour every single Thursday, and yet I'm still learning a ton from this book. And it's a fantastic read. So um, please, everyone, go buy this book. Um, all right, let's start with the most important story in America, which is that Roseanne Barr. <laughs> Went on a racist Twitter tirade that led ABC to almost immediately cancel her show. Uh, Roseanne has been known for tweeting conspiracy theories and other vile, racist, Islamophobic garbage for a long time. But what finally did it for the network was a tweet about our friend and former Obama senior advisor Valerie Jarrett. Roseanne wrote, Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ. Monster. Uh, Roseanne blamed her initial tweet on being up at 2 a.m. in the morning and, quote, Ambien tweeting. Uh, the company that makes Ambien then responded by saying, while all pharmaceutical treatments have side effects, racism is not a known side effect of any Sanofi medication. (laughs) What a a world we live in. What a fucking world we live in, Dan. Within 12 hours of the tweet, ABC's network entertainment president, Channing Dungy, said in a statement, Roseanne's Twitter statement is abhorrent, repugnant, and inconsistent with our values. Disney president Bob Iger then said it was the right thing to do, and the show was canceled. Dan, why did ABC uh, go ahead and cancel the show, and, uh, and what are your thoughts on how they did it relatively quickly? Kudos to them for doing this. I mean, this is one of their highest-rated shows. It was a tremendous success. Uh, Kind of a surprise success, I think, for its ratings. 
they knew there would be blowback to this because everything in the Trump era has to be about what side you're on. And this was the like the island of Trumpism in liberal Hollywood was going to be Roseanne, which was the show was about a Trump supporter or a Trump supporting family. And so they did the right thing. Um, What I was struck by was the fact that most people assumed they wouldn't do the right thing. And not because ABC, like there's something particularly wrong with ABC or they're known to be particularly craven. I don't think they're any better or worse than any other entertainment network. It's that what has happened is the things Roseanne said would be seen so far out of bounds prior to uh, Trump being president that it would be with, without a question. There would be universal condemnation. But in the Trump era, this is seen as reflecting some legitimate political ideology that we must for some reason respect. Um, and so we assume they might stay. So I look, I think they did the right thing. I'm really ple- it's, pleased they did it. And it says a lot that it was a surprise that they did this. Yeah. I mean, so, of course – uh, President Trump responded to all this because he can't let anything go ever uh, by demanding an apology from Bob Iger. Uh, he did it yesterday. He did it again this morning on Twitter. He's continuing this. Um, he demanded an apology for, quote, horrible statements made and said about me on ABC. And then uh, on Wednesday in the briefing room, Sarah Huckabee Sanders elaborated, quote, where was Bob Iger's apology to the White House staff for Jamel Hill calling the president and anyone associated with him a white supremacist? And where was the apology from Bob Iger for ESPN hiring Keith Olbermann and his numerous expletive-laced tweets attacking the president as a Nazi and even expanding his role after that attack against the president's family? Dan, do these people need a reminder that calling someone racist is not equivalent to being called something racist? Like we, the, the the right has this problem where they like to conf- they, they think that racism is just like saying nasty, mean things to someone. So that when someone on the right says something repugnant and racist or sexist or Islamophobic, they then find someone on the left who said something mean and nasty about a conservative, and they say this is equivalent. Yes, I mean even before Roseanne. Peter King responded, the congressman from New York, compared the Colin Kaepernick and the NFL players who protest to whether the to people who would do a neo-Nazi salute at an NFL game and how the NFL would do that. And so what this is the really, I think, the absolute cancer that Trump has been on the moral fiber of this country is that we have polarized the idea of racism. Like we did believe. Yeah for a long time in society, or at least pretended to believe that there were certain things that were out of bounds and just full frontal blatant racism was something that both that everyone could agree was not acceptable in our society, that that was the, that was the mortal sin that would have you, you would lose your job. You'd be put, you would be condemned. You'd be pushed out of the public square. But now Trump has, polarized racism and so for some something to be racist has to be it's the other side of the coin right yeah that racism and opposing racism are the same are the, are just two opposite views like being pro pro obamacare anti obamacare it's not that we had treated racism in public statements of racism and sexism and other things as something slight as something different now to be perfectly fair that the, i mean that was a little bit 
of a fiction in the sense that maybe it was hiding all this racism that was happening underneath, but at least in public life for a very long time. This is not new PC correctness, whether it was the NFL analyst Jimmy the Greek or others, people who said things that were racist often paid a price professionally because of we de- we had decided as a society that there were going to be repercussions for that. But in this response, what is amazing is the people who are engaging like the White House in this what about what aboutism about all these other things that were said about Trump is at no point does anyone condemn what Roseanne Barr said. No. Of course not. You can. It is a fair belief. Like you could have an argument that ABC has been has not been even handed in their treatment of people of their talent who say offensive things. That is an argument to be had. But it just they cannot say that what Roseanne Barr said was was racist or wrong because to do so would be to admit that many of their most prominent surrogates and supporters and the president himself is also a racist. So we must pretend like it's just some uh, like it's saying you know the like the Keith Holmer example like fuck you or anything like that that it's somehow that it, the fact that it is no longer seen as different is such a disturbing impact that Trump has had on this country well and they also don't want to say it because they want the votes and support of people who believe that what Roseanne said was correct and who hold those same views people in this country who are racist who are um, white supremacist who showed up in Charlottesville at that rally. Um, Donald Trump, his White House, a lot of Trump pundits, a lot of Trump supporters that you see in the media, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them, um, they will not refute these things because for their electoral survival, they want the support of these people. Um, you, you were talking about what this says about sort of broader life in the Trump era. <clears throat> Brian Boitler our editor of Cricket.com wrote a piece about this and um, that's online yesterday. And he said, there would have been no Roseanne reboot if Donald Trump hadn't become president, which I think is a very smart point. We ABC knew, we all knew, that Roseanne tweeted racist shit before. She said something horribly racist about Susan Rice a couple of years ago. All of the tweets were there when ABC decided to reboot the show. Um, Roxanne Gay noted in a New York Times op-ed, before ABC did the right thing, it did the wrong thing. ABC is the same network that shelved an episode of Blackish because it addressed the NFL anthem protest. I'm more interested in the statement ABC could have made by never making the reboot in the first place. But of course, they chose to make the reboot because there is this belief now that because Trump won, we must somehow understand and validate some of the people who elected him president and their views by having entertainment, products, politics, media that reflect those people's views, even if some of the views are repugnant. And that is something that that is a shift in in this country that has happened very quickly, but also seems extraordinarily disturbing. Yeah, and I think the, the, the thing about it is it's just so ham-handed. It's the same way – the New York Times has to write a profile of Trump supporters every three days. It's right. if somehow there's some magic number of those profiles some like allows them to look in the mirror and say they don't have liberal bias. Or if they do 12 of them in a 12-month period, then the right will stop attacking them. I will say a, a television show, a movie, a book, whatever whatever form of content you want about people who are Trump supporters – 
is great. Let's do that. Like, right. I'm fine with that. It just didn't have to be Roseanne. They knew what they were getting into when they picked her. But, like, there are – I believe there are many Trump supporters, the majority probably, more than – overwhelming majority, who are not racist in the way that maybe Donald Trump is or Roseanne Barr is. They may be willing to tolerate a level of racism that we find disturbing in some of their leaders. But, like, we – like – like one of my favorite shows is The Americans. It's a show about Russian spies attacking America. I'm not into Russian spies. Like I don't support the Russians in, in the 80s, but it's an interesting like show. And there could be a good show about this. But when you pick a long time conspiracy theory wielding crank to be in front of the show, this is where you're going to end up. But it's just so like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Trump won. We're liberal. What can we do to placate the, you know, the MAGA hat wearing crowd? Let's do let's do a Roseanne show. It's just it's it's ham handed and bad. And there there are better ways to to try to reflect that strain of thinking. The the less offensive, the less offensive version of that strain of thinking in America. Yeah, it shows sort of a lack of even intellectual curiosity and rigor on behalf of the people who try to put these shows on or appeal to these people. I mean, look, I, I, I know what you're saying about Trump supporters. Like, I, I conducted a focus group. I conducted a couple focus groups um, for the pod that I'm doing on the Democratic Party. And um, one, I went to Texas and I did Obama voters who were, voted for Obama in 12 and then they were third party or no party voters in 2016 didn't vote. And then I went to Michigan and I sat down with some people who voted for Obama in 2012 and then voted for Donald Trump in 2016. And these are some interesting people and their views aren't quite exactly as you might guess. You know, they're sitting there saying they want Medicare for all. <laughs> they're pretty liberal in that way. And they also thought, you know, Hillary Clinton was corrupt. and But they would have voted for Barack Obama again if they could. And they thought Donald Trump was going to fix their health care, but he didn't. And you can say whatever you want about these people, but they don't. The views don't necessarily fit into the boxes we have for them. And p why people vote, well, how people support who they do is much more complicated than I think you see reflected in the media and politics right now and the political analysis of like why we have Trump. But Roseanne <laughs> taking plucking Roseanne out of her out of you know from her Twitter feed and all of her racist tirades and saying, okay, yeah, this is gonna work. We're gonna give her a television show and now she's gonna be normal and not say racist shit doesn't seem like it was well thought out. No, not at all. Um, so <clears throat> another issue with this whole debate, Media Matters pointed out yesterday the cable news covered Roseanne for over 10 hours. The three networks spent only 30 minutes, however, on the new study that came out on Wednesday that found almost 5,000 Americans may have died in Puerto Rico because of Hurricane Maria, which is a lot more than the official government death toll of 64. Meanwhile, the government's rolling back a bunch of Wall Street regulations. Some Republicans in Congress are planning to make another run at repealing the Affordable Care Act. There's now 10,000 unaccompanied children in the custody of Health and Human Services because Donald Trump is tearing them away from their parents at the border. It seems like, on one hand, you know, we just talked about it for a couple of minutes. It's an important issue. Someone on one of the highest tel rated television shows in America said something horribly racist and got the show canceled. It's worth talking about. Um, but it's are we sort of destined to be consumed 
by these daily outrages in the Trump era? And does that benefit Donald Trump? Yes and yes. And it's not new. Like it's not we did not live in a world where the public consumed deep, serious policy news nonstop with a smile on its face prior to Trump. Right. We have always lived in a world where celebrity gossip, like the shiny object, is more interesting to the to the public than you know, a study about a hurricane in Puerto Rico or the other issues you mentioned. And it's easy for us to say, God damn it, cable news. Why didn't you spend all day on this Puerto Rico study? And maybe they should have. But also the reason they don't, they is that people are interested in the other thing too. And so it's about finding a balance. Now we always, we do sort of treat Trump like a toddler with a Twitter account. It's like, oh, he's he is actually upset that Bob Iger did not call him. He's mad that Bob Iger will call Valerie, but not him. That's an affront to his very fragile ego. But there is, I think, there is a method to the madness. You know, I don't know if it's. I always say that what Trump's does is his strategy is not intellectual; it's instinctual. But he wants to fan the flames of these culture wars as yes. much as humanly possible because any discussion of anything else is bad for him. He just wants to keep a certain segment of the American people, 38 to 42%, angry and threatened. And in doing this, that the he, he is able to keep the conversation off of the issues that we know would be helpful to Democrats in the 2018 election. Rising premiums due to Trump administration sabotage of um, – of the Affordable Care Act, the benefits of the tax bill overwhelmingly going to large corporations, investors, and not getting down to the American people. Those sorts of things, keeping that out, shaping the conversation around Colin Kaepernick kneeling, Roseanne being unfairly targeted in the view of some, is all about controlling the conversation. It's how he won in 2016. I mean, if you, with the, if you don't include the Russians intervening on his behalf, Controlling the conversation in the media and on social media is to his great advantage, and he's pretty good at it. Yeah, and and we should say that it's not just Donald Trump; it is the entire Trump media. This is all the Trump pundits out there. This is their strategy, and they're all united in the strategy is to gin up outrage on the right to keep people angry, so that they can try to match the enthusiasm on the left for voting. There was actually a great Politico story about this the other day, about how Trump and the Republicans, their entire midterm strategy is outrage. And they know Democrats are fired up. And they know they're not going to be able to get Republican voters excited about anything that Trump has done, about any legislative accomplishment. His voters don't give a fuck about his tax cut. They don't like it. They didn't want him to try to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, they don't like mu what much of what he's doing. But they do love him taking on these cultural battles every single day and these outrages. And so what you see on the right, you know, all, in all these Republican races, it's, you know, Nancy Pelosi is an MS-13 lover, which is what Donald Trump said at a rally the other day. And it's, okay, um, you guys canceled Roseanne. Well, now we're going to talk about every single person on the left who said something outrageous and nasty, and we're going to go after them and demand an apology for that. So basically what they're trying to do is they're not trying to get people excited about their agenda or what they have to offer. 
they're just hope they're not trying to inspire anyone they're trying to hope that people are just cynical enough to either stay home in November or to go vote Republican to own the libs. Vote Republican to own the libs is basically their, all, all they have as a slogan right now. Yeah, it's the Republican Party has been taken over by trolls. It is, I mean, the, the, everything about, everything they do, everything they care about, everything they say is to troll. They are Twitter trolls in government. And I don't care if you work for Paul Ryan or Kevin McCarthy or and you think you are, you know, or, you know, or Rand Paul, whoever else, and you go to work every day and you think you're working for Paul Ryan or Kevin McCarthy or Rand Paul, you're not. You work for Donald Trump and no one else. You go to work every day to do his bidding, to enable the things he does, to support the just the absurdity and of his presidency. And that that is what that is what the Republican Party has no agenda other than to own the libs. That's what it is. That's what you do. And their strategy, you're exactly right. Their strategy is to make enough people feel under threat from immigrants, Muslims, Hollywood elites, that they will vote to protect their cultural interests. And yeah. it, it sadly worked in 2016. And if we, if Democrats do not turn out like we have never fucking turned out before, it will happen in 2018 again. Yeah. And look, I mean, I brought up the Media Matters study, not even to critique the media for this, because I'm, I'm sort of past that at this point where, you know, we're, we're going to war here with the media we have, not the media we want. Um, the, the question is, as Democrats, we somehow have to break through this noise and we somehow have to remind people why they're going to the polls in November. And it's not to just own the conservatives or to own Donald Trump. It's to actually bring some accountability back to this government and start the process by which we actually start passing progressive legislation and progressive accomplishments. And it's going to be hard, even if we take back Congress, to pass anything legislatively while Donald Trump's president. But in the states, we're already seeing some of this happen. I mean, on, on Wednesday, uh, Virginia finally passed a Medicaid expansion. And the only reason they passed that expansion, 400,000 people in Virginia are going to have health care now. And the reason, the only reason they are going to have health care is because um, people showed up in November of 2017, and they didn't just show up for Ralph Northam, who was at the top of the ticket. They showed up for all of these first-time candidates who were running in these um, state assembly races. And that's a very big deal. That made a difference. Phil Murphy in New Jersey, uh, Democratic governor, now a Democratic legislature in New Jersey, one of the most progressive governors in the country right now, passing all kinds of progressive uh, legislation right now, especially around uh, registering voters and automatic registration and all kinds of stuff like that. We can have an enormous difference that will make a positive impact in people's lives in November if we go vote. And we have somehow got to get out of this like po poisonous, toxic cycle every single day of just like fighting back and forth with these fucking Republicans who only want to just attack Democrats all day long. They have no issues. <laughs> they have no issues or ideology. Forget about an ideology or issues that we disagree with. They have nothing anymore. They have nothing. With the exception of making people – their only ideology is try to make white people scared of non-white people. That's right. That is the driving force of the Republican Party. It is – and you're right. We can't, if, like, if we are fighting about Roseanne or – some of these pardons that came out here, whatever else, and not the tax cut, 
healthcare, those sorts of things, the corruption that's happening in Washington, I think we're going to be in big trouble. We're going to end up right where we were in 2016. And so pivoting to the issues is going to be critically important. And what happens on Twitter is only mildly related to how this is going to play out in the campaigns, right? The David Leonhardt from the New York Times had a very good uh, column the other day where he he went and looked at what the Democrats were actually running on in campaigns, and they were running on all the right things, corruption, health care, tax cuts, and not Russia or impeachment or anything else. And so, like, we're going to have to be disciplined, but, like, Twitter is not a poll. Twitter is not a mirror of what's happening in the country. Maybe it's a funhouse mirror, but what it will matter is what is happening on TV, in digital ads, at the doors, on the phones, in these campaigns, in these districts that matter. And the early signs are very good that candidates are doing the right thing. And look, I'll also just end with, this is not to say that we should not engage on issues and controversy around race or sexism or immigration or any of the things that Trump wants to fight about. But it's it's reminding people what the actual issues at stake are. So when they fight about, when, when Peter King starts tweeting about uh, comparing Colin Kaepernick kneeling um, with you know Nazi salutes, it's not about fucking the national anthem. This is about what he was kneeling for, which is protesting police brutality and racial injustice. So let's talk about police brutality and racial injustice. Let's talk about the issues that are at the core of these fights and not like who's in a fight with who right now. That, that, that seems to be the important point here. Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done. Just stuff their feelings down. Maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode.
let's move on to talk about all the law breaking in the White House because they have been very busy. <laughs> very, very busy. Um, the New York Times reported Tuesday that Donald Trump asked Jeff Sessions to retake control of the investigation into Donald Trump and his associates after Sessions had already recused himself from the matter. According to the Times, Trump told aides he needed a loyalist in charge of the probe and Sessions refused his blunt suggestion to reverse his decision about recusal. The new reporting from the Times also sheds light on how Sessions is a key witness into Robert Mueller's investigation into whether Trump tried to obstruct the Russia probe itself. Um, Trump, meanwhile, tweeted on Wednesday that he wishes he chose a different person for the job than Sessions. I imagine he was drinking from his uh, world's best boss mug when he tweeted that. (laughs) 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 you imagine that? You're Jeff Sessions and he's, I wish I did pick someone else. Um, (laughs) Times also reported that Andrew McCabe wrote in his notes, wrote a memo that uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein said the president pressured him to cite the Russia investigation in the document he wrote that provided the basis for Comey's dismissal. Dan, my first question is, what's a guy got to do to get caught obstructing justice around here? <laughs> How, like, what I mean, I else guess, do we need? I, I'm no I mean, lawyer. I'm no, this, I'm no brilliant legal mind, but it does seem fairly obvious at this point. I mean, if at the end of the day, because this is a president, the question is, did the president try to abuse the powers given to him by the Constitution to stop an investigation into himself and his campaign? Yes, 100% that happened. He didn't just do it once. He did it as often as he possibly could. At every turn, he tried to do everything he possibly could to stop this investigation. He's still doing and it. So that they, is, they, that they is clear. That is – it's done. Robert Mueller – can't finish the investigation into obstruction of justice because Donald Trump continues to obstruct justice as the investigation continues. It's like (laughs) he's like caught in one big cycle. Every time he probably finishes writing his report about obstruction of justice, there goes Donald Trump trying to obstruct justice again. (laughs) It's now Robert Mueller knows how I feel when I do the pot outline every Thursday. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, Donald Trump this morning, as I'm sitting here getting ready to come over to the studio, tweets, not that it matters, but I never fired James Comey because of the Russia uh, investigation. The corrupt mainstream media loves to keep pushing that narrative, but they know it's not true. Does the guy know that video exists of him with an, having an interview with Lester Holt of NBC where he said, and I told myself when I fired him, I'm really sick of this Russia thing. <laughs> we all saw it. I mean, I don't never know what is a worse outcome for America. Is it that Trump is so fucking dishonest that he is willing to bald-face lie to the American people about something that is so obviously true? Or does he have such a limited grasp on reality that he doesn't even remember what he said to Lester Holt that sparked the entire controversy and led to the appointment of Robert Mueller. So, I mean, like you never know yeah. which it is. Neither outcome is I think good. It's both. I will say. I think he <laughs> or both are true. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I was going to say. I think the man. Um, he's not a details guy. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have a long memory. He doesn't know much. He's very ignorant of government politics uh, policy. He just doesn't know much. He hasn't wanted to learn much. So a lot of it might be not remembering, not caring, not learning about anything, not being briefed. And then we know that the guy also lies and he lies on purpose. 
And we know that for many reasons. There's a million different examples. We also know that the rare, we've said this before, the rare times he is under oath and, and testifies um, and knows that he could, um, you know, break the law by commit, committing perjury. He actually is, it's a different Donald Trump. It's not the Twitter Donald Trump. We've seen him in these depositions before. So we know that the man lies, but we also know that the man's an idiot. So probably um, most of his statements are a combination of both. Um, the other thing he did today is he pardoned fucking Dinesh D'Souza, um, who pleaded guilty of illegal campaign contributions um, and is one of these right-wing morons who was around during the Obama era who said, you know, slavery wasn't racist. Slaves were p- treated pretty well. He mocked Rosa Parks. He's a famous birther, mocked Barack Obama, said horrible things about Michelle Obama. Um a lot of people are saying, rightly so, that, you know, Donald Trump pardons um, someone on the right, a favored figure who um, was guilty of campaign finance violations, right as we're getting closer to a Michael Cohen indictment, and that perhaps this was a signal to people like Michael Cohen that if you stay strong and don't flip, there will be a pardon coming for you, too. Uh, what did you think about all this? It's it is. It's almost like the Roseanne thing all over again, which is Dinesh D'Souza is a terrible human being. He works really fucking hard to be a terrible human being. That is his goal in life: is to be the worst person online. It's how he makes money. It's how he stays famous. He's disgusting, and so Trump does this. And it would be so easy for Republicans to say this was the wrong thing to do, or to even say if you believe incorrectly based on all the evidence that this was the case of some sort of selective prosecution that to condemn the person even if you support the action but they are incapable of doing that because to say anything negative about a racist online troll would have the side effect of suggesting something negative about the racist online troll sitting in the oval office and so we're in this terrible cycle of stupidity where these ridiculous things happen, but Republican officials almost to a person are incapable of saying even the most perfunctory condemnation of offensive behavior in racism. And we're right back at it again. Yeah. And look, I mean, one of the most common responses I saw this morning is, well, just for all of you who think this might have been illegal – You know, the president's pardon power is absolute. It's the closest thing to, you know, basically being a king. And constitutionally, um, that may be true, but that doesn't mean that presidents can't abuse that power. And it is clear that Donald Trump has severely abused his pardon power already. It started when he pardoned Joe Arpaio, who basically, you know, ran torture chambers. And now pardoning Dinesh D'Souza... Um, There used to be a process by which presidents pardon people. That was true in Republican administrations and Democratic administrations. It goes through the Department of Justice. There are memos written. There is legal reasoning as to why you pardon someone. People have to make a case for it. And now he's just going around pardoning his supporters who've done horrible things and in some cases have admitted their guilt and have pled guilty. And he's just doing it because he fucking can And the reason this is important is not just because he's trying to protect himself. It doesn't just have to do with the Mueller investigation and the rest investigation. The the idea that we now have a president of the United States who is sending a message to the country that if you are my supporter but you commit crimes, you will be okay. 
that is incredibly fucking dangerous because that if you go down that path is a, it is a very dangerous path to be on that this guy's just going to start pardoning anyone he wants who commits any crime just because they are one of Donald Trump's supporters. Yeah, using the pardon power to help political supporters is an abuse of power. It just is. And it will be it would be up to Congress to decide whether that was a abuse of power worthy of impeachment and conviction by the Senate, but it is he is abusing his power to help himself politically in ways in which no president since Nixon has done. And because it's all happening so fast right before our eyes, we don't treat it. We, the larger political media culture, don't treat it with any with the same sort of gravity that we would in any other situation. And that is largely from the fact that it is consequence-free because Trump has immunity by majority because the Republicans in charge of Congress. And so their coward their control of Congress combined with their cowardice and their absolutely morally bankrupt approach to anything other than the accumulation of additional political power means that Trump can do whatever the fuck he wants. There are no checks and balances in, in government right now. and Except, except the judiciary. It, like We are in a very, very disturbing place for democracy. Trump got on Air Force One and said, it's as if he, a child discovering a new toy. He's like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll also pardon Illinois Governor Rob Lagojevich and Martha Stewart. Just because is not a legal theory. It is not a rationale for using the power, the pardon power. But that is that is apparently what he's planning on doing. And you're right. Maybe this has nothing to do with the Mueller investigation. But if you're Paul Manafort or Michael Cohen, you probably feel a little bit better about your discussions with Robert Mueller if you know that Trump is handing out pardons like candy on Halloween. Meanwhile, we have uh, this week we had Republican congressman who's on the Intel Committee, Trey Gowdy. Trey Benghazi Gowdy, the guy who led the investigation into Benghazi, you couldn't get more hackish and partisan um, during the Obama era than Trey Gowdy. And he went on TV this week and he basically said that after the highly publicized briefing with Justice Department officials last week, um, that Devin Nunes and Donald Trump and that everyone demanded um, to talk about, you know, Donald Trump's bullshit Spygate conspiracy theory that somehow a spy was planted in the Trump campaign. Um, Trey Gowdy said that nothing he heard, nothing suggested that the FBI acted improperly by using an informant to investigate whether Russian officials had attempted to contact Trump's presidential campaign and interfere with the 2016 election. And this news about one of the Republican Party's staunchest members, the person who's on the Intel Committee, who's led these politically charged bullshit investigations in the past, he's now out there saying the FBI acted properly and we just move right past it. Just move right past it. You don't just you don't see it on conservative media. You don't see it anywhere else. We're just sort of uh okay, fine. Trey Gowdy Trey Gowdy has basically blown a hole in this conspiracy theory and now here we are. Yeah. It's, I mean, I mean, it is amazing it's Trey Gowdy because, I mean, as you point out, Trey Gowdy led the Benghazi investigation, but he didn't lead it because he just happened to be the chair of the committee at the time. In order to satiate the rabid right-wing base, John Boehner decided to appoint a special committee on Benghazi. So he scanned the waterfront looking for the biggest partisan hack he could possibly find to lead the biggest, most partisan hackish investigation he could find, and he landed on Trey Gowdy. So when Trey Gowdy says that your conspiracy theory is bullshit, then your conspiracy theory is really bullshit. And it 
I guess this is my sleep-addled take on the Mueller investigation, mm. which is I think we care about it too much. Yeah. It's in the current context. If what you care about is how do we how does do we get Donald Trump out of office? How do we ensure that he suffers consequences for the things that he has done politically, legally or otherwise? It's all sort of irrelevant as it relates to Trump in our current political situation. Like there is there is no piece of information that Robert Mueller is going to find that is going to convince Donald Trump's base in the public or anyone in the Congress to take action. Well, that, that is, there is there is nothing. That is for sure. There is not a there is nothing they could find. I was going to a voicemail from Trump to Putin, <laughs> a videotape of Trump and Putin sitting on a laptop together, hacking into John Podesta's emails. None of those things would change the change the actual dynamic here. The investigation is important because we need to find out what happened. And there are multiple crimes committed, extraneous and otherwise, to quote Roger Stone, and people should pay for those um, for those crimes with the, in front of the justice system. But if if it is the view of Mueller and the, that Trump can only be cannot be indicted and can only be face the consequences for his crimes in front of Congress, depending on two thirds of the Senate to convict him then we're going to have to find other ways to get Donald Trump out of office. And we're going to have to suffer through this for a few years and then kick his ass in 2020. So I, I mostly agree with that. I think that's right. Um, I was going to cite this uh, Navigator Research, which is um, a progressive group, uh, did a poll this week and found that uh, self-identified Fox News watchers overwhelmingly opposed the Mueller investigation by a 73 to 23% margin. Um CNN and MSNBC viewers support the investigation by a 79-18% margin. Um, but the interesting thing is all all viewers of all news except Fox, so when you do not just CNN and MSNBC, but anywhere you get your news, newspapers, local news, wherever else, those viewers, uh, in, com- in comparison with Fox viewers, um, those viewers support the Mueller investigation by a 64-25 to 25 margin. So it's basically only Fox viewers that are isolated in this little bubble. And I think for those people, you are 100% correct. That, that is Trump's base. They are never, no matter what happens, this is the, the, this is the you know, shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Ave crowd. No matter what happens, they are going to be behind Donald Trump and the Trump media is going to be behind him. I do wonder, again, we don't know what Mueller knows. And time and time again, it's proven that like, you know, Mueller can drop these bombshells that sort of change the narrative for a while and it doesn't matter a bit to Trump's base. But obviously, there's a lot more people out there who are either undecided, they're independents, they're in the middle, they're back and forth. And I remember, and I've said this before, you know, if you listen to that podcast, Slow Burn, about Watergate, um, public opinion was with Nixon even after the media revealed all these potential crimes, right up until the time where the tapes dropped. And then when the tapes dropped and they actually heard Nixon's voice, public opinion shifted against him very quickly. Now, I don't – I know what you're saying. I don't think there's like some – I don't think there will ever be audio of Trump and Putin talking and saying let's collude together. <laughs> I think that's probably too much to imagine. Um, but there is a very real possibility that Robert Mueller could name Donald Trump an unindicted co-conspirator in a crime. 
and that is a very big deal. There's a possibility that he could name him an unindicted co-conspirator with for money laundering or corruption or something like that. Um, so there's all these possibilities out there that something could come in the Mueller investigation that turns some of the more undecided, soft, up-for-grabs voters against him. But I think you're right that in the final analysis, Democrats can't do anything about that. We just have to wait and see. You know, like we just have to wait for Mueller to finish his job and when we need to protect the investigation from Donald Trump shutting it down because we need to know the truth and we need him to do his job. But beyond that, you're right that there's like there's nothing much we can do. We just have to wait for the investigation to happen. I think all of that is right. It is just worth noting that in the Nixon example, Nixon had to leave office, not because public opinion turned on him, although these two things I'm about to say are related, but because a group of Republican senators went to the White House and said, you have to go. That day will never come in today's Republican Party. Never. There's only one way Donald Trump's leaving this office, and that is on a helicopter on January 20th, 2021, when a Democrat is sworn in. And... Like the, and that is a. I just think that it there. I cannot imagine a world, no matter how good the twenty eighteen Senate elections go, where we are in a position where two thirds of the Senate would vote to convict Donald Trump. It just seems impossible to imagine. Two thirds. Two thirds is such a big number. <laughs> Try to find. We can't find fifty one senators for shit right now. Never mind sixty. Never mind you know the sixty five, sixty six is necessary. Sixty seven, I think. For, uh, for two-thirds. It is a very, very steep hill to climb. Very steep hill. On um, that hopeful note. Okay. So on that hopeful note, that is a hopeful note because now we are going to talk about elections, elections that matter. Um, you have heard us talk about California's top two primary system. We are not fans anymore. I don't think I was ever a fan, but we're really not fans now. Um, this is a system where the top two finishers in the primary – Advance to the general election regardless of party. So you can have a situation where two Democrats face each other in the general election, or you can have a situation where two Republicans face each other in the general election. On Tuesday, June 5th, this Tuesday, in three very flippable Republican-held House districts in Orange County, the top two finishers could end up being Republicans. And that's because there are too many Democratic candidates running in these districts, and they are splitting up the Democratic votes, and it is a very real and very big problem. This is now sort of break glass moment here on these primaries. Um, So we talked about this at Cricket Media. We are not going to make official endorsements here. Um, We don't know these candidates. We have not spoken to these candidates. And most importantly, we do not live in these districts. We want all friends of the pod, to decide for themselves. We on this pod have criticized the DCCC and other organizations for stepping into primaries and telling people who to vote for. We don't want to do that. What we do want to do today is give all of you the information and insights that we have into these races to help you make an educated choice that will ultimately, we hope, help Democrats win these seats. Dan, before we get into the three districts, how's your level of anxiety about this? Pretty high. It's very high. And because the like I like to think of myself as someone who believe, focuses, believes in the math, trust the math, believe, you know, look at the data. But I also, as you know, am 
been known to find the uh, dark linings and silver clouds at times. And the horrendous irony of Democrats not taking the House back because we were too fucking enthusiastic is more than I can possibly take. And yeah. so it is uh, – It this has been weighing on me for a long time, and it weighs on me more with every passing day. Yeah, me me too. Um, okay, let's um, let's start with the 39th district. We're going to start from the districts that are least problematic and move to the district that is most problematic. So the least problematic but still something to watch is the 39th district. Um, this is the Fullerton, Yorba Linda area currently represented by Republican Ed Royce, who will not be running again. He decided to retire. He was one of our Cricket 7. We've already retired him. Um this district is rated lean Democrat, and Hillary won it by eight points. It is one of the most flippable districts in the country, but there are currently six Democrats in the race, even after a bunch of Democrats dropped out of this race to avoid the lockout. There are six Democrats running, and there are two Republicans who could finish first and second easily. Um, so this is one of the most flippable districts in the country if a Democrat wins it gets into one of the top two spots. We have an extremely good chance of flipping this district. Based on all the polling so far, and a lot of it is internal polling, there has not been a lot of public polling on any of these races, the two Democratic candidates who are most likely to win in the 39th are Gil Cisneros and Andy Thorburn. Um, Gil Cisneros has been leading in the polls. Uh, he's above the top two Republicans. He's probably leading in the race. He's a Navy veteran, ex-Republican, a philanthropist after he won the lottery. Uh, he has the backing of the DCCC and several current and former members of the California congressional delegation. And in terms of issues, he is your standard issue progressive Democrat. If you want to know more about his positions on various issues, you should go to his website. Um, that's Gil Cisneros. The other candidate who's a Democrat who has a decent chance of winning in this district is Andy Thorburn. Um, he's also been at the top of the polls. He is a former classroom teacher, workers' rights advocate, and Democratic businessman who has the backing of Bernie Sanders' Our Revolution group. Uh, he's in favor of Medicare for All. He is more Bernie-like in his stance on different issues. Um, those are the two candidates with the most likely chance of winning. Like I said, there are other Democrats in this race. They have not broken out of uh, polling in the single digits. Um, this is not to say anything bad about them. They are good candidates. They are good people for running. But they have been lagging very far behind in the single digits in polling. And the only two Democrats with a real chance are Gil Cisneros and Andy Thorburn. This is the 39th. Dan, you want to take the 49th? In the 49th, uh, this is the race to fill the seat vacated by uh, congressional pest Daryl Issa. Uh, with, this district is the northern coastal areas of San Diego County. There are four Democrats running, and again, two Republicans who could easily come in first and second. Clinton won the district by eight points, but it's rated as a toss-up, so it's a little bit tougher than uh, the 39th. Based on the polling thus far, there are three Democrats with a real chance of winning the top two spots. Colonel Doug Applegate, Sarah Jacobs, and Mike Levin. Doug Applegate is a retired Marine who ran against ISA in 2016. He lost by only 1,600 votes. He was leading in the polls at the beginning of the race but has since been trending downward. Uh, he has been endorsed by the South Orange County Democratic Party and the Justice Democrats. 
Sarah Jacobs uh, was a policy staffer who worked for Hillary Clinton, who grew up in the district and moved back home to run. At 29, she would be the youngest woman elected to Congress, and she's been backed by Emily's List, NARAL, and a few members of Congress, and she's been gaining in the polls over the last several months. And then there's Mike Levin, who's an environmental lawyer and former head of the Orange County Democratic Party. He received 53% of the state delegate support at the, convention, at the state convention, uh, which is short of the 60% you need to get the official nomination. Uh, he's supported by, the lo- by a local indivisible chapter, the Sierra Club, and members of the California congressional delegation like Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell. All three of these Democrats are very close in their policy positions, very close in the polls, and any of them could get the first or second spot. Yeah, this is this is really one of the tougher ones in terms of uh, picking between the Democrats because um, and, you know, we have to go with the three here because they are all so close in the polls. Um, And look, this is another like very easily flippable district. Um, It's one of the reasons that ISA retired. And so we need a Democrat in one of these top two slots. So, you know, do some research on these three. But I think, you know, those are the three with the chance of winning. Um, Finally, the California 48th, uh, where we're trying to knock off one of the crooked eight, Russia's favorite congressman, Dana Rohrbacher. Um, The 48th is Huntington Beach, Laguna Beach, Newport Beach. This is the most Republican district. Uh, Clinton only won it by two points. It's rated a toss up. And it is the one place where Democrats are most likely to get shut out. A, because it's the most Republican district, and B, because there are five Democrats running and two serious Republican contenders, Rohrbacher and another guy who are at the top of the polls. So this is the district that could be a very, very serious problem. Um, Based on all the polling, there are only two Democrats uh, of those six with a real chance of winning, and frankly, only two Democrats you should vote for, uh, Harley Ruda and Hans Kirstead. Harley Ruda is a tech entrepreneur who has a slight lead in the polls, He's supported by the DCCC, the Sierra Club, the Progressive Democrats of America, about 10 congressional Democrats. Two of the Democratic candidates who were running in this district and then dropped out because it was so crowded have decided to support Harley Ruda. Um, he also has the endorsement of the local Indivisible chapter. And then he got the national Indivisible endorsement as well. And I actually reached out to our friends at Indivisible about this endorsement because um, they're telling me, you know, the threshold and the criteria you need to meet to get not only a local uh, endorsement, but the national. And, you, you know, it, it's very rigorous. And they said that um, the grassroots have been so excited about Harley Ruda from the very beginning, and he's been the grassroots favorite ever since he jumped into the race. And so they endorsed him locally and they endorsed him nationally. Uh, so that's Harley Ruda. Uh, Hans Kirstead is the other Democrat with a chance of winning. He's a stem cell researcher who was endorsed by the state party and two congressmen. He's slightly behind Harley in the polls. And again, the two candidates are very close on the issues. Again, it is very important in this district that people rally behind one of these candidates. And so if you live in the 48th, if you live in that area, and you want to be Dana Rohrbacher, um, please consider uh, voting for one of these candidates. And do not – the other problem with this district is about three candidates have dropped out. Like we said, two are now supporting Harley Ruda. Uh, the other one hasn't said anything. But there are still a number of candidates on the ballot, including some of those candidates that have dropped out, who are still on the ballot because they dropped out so late that their names are still on the ballot. So, again, Harley Ruda has a lot of endorsements, indivisible, grassroots, Hans Kirstead. Those are two candidates in this district you should be thinking about, no one else.
Um, so that's the that's that's our that's all the things that we know about these districts. That's all the polling we've seen. Again, we've reached out to some of the people working on these re- races. We reached out to some California Party insiders, um, and that's that's what we know. We're also going to stand up um, a website. So if you've uh, missed this on the pod and you want to just uh, get more information, you can find it there. Um, don't know exactly when it'll be up, but we will let you know. Keep checking out Crooked.com, and we will tweet about it from the Pod Save and Crooked account soon. So um, everyone who lives there can um, can get this information. The primary is Tuesday, June 5th. Everyone in California, vote. And don't just vote. Even if you're registered, even if you're ready to go vote, go talk to your friends. Bring a friend to vote. Get your friends to vote. Find out if your friends and family are registered and ready to vote and make sure they get their ballots in. Here's my challenge to friends of the pod and listeners in California. Don't bring one friend. Don't bring one family member. Find 10 friends. You're all very popular social people. If you weren't, you wouldn't listen to this podcast. Go find 10 friends. Make sure they're voting. Go together. Go go to brunch afterwards. I don't care. But like this is the most critical election that we have seen in our lifetimes, and we can't half-ass it. So we all have – your vote is critically important to use it, but you have agency to get more people to vote. Find your laziest friends and make sure they vote. But just be aggressive about it over the next several days here until Tuesday. California makes it easy. If you want to all get together, have a cocktail, vote by mail, do that. If you want to go be in person and get a cool sticker, do that. But find people to vote. It's not. A, it's really not enough anymore in the Trump era to just you yourself vote. You got to get your friends to vote. Yeah, and look, ballots are already coming in because California is a state where you can you know mail in your ballot, and a lot of people do. And we'll say you know the people who are tabulating the early vote so far uh, in some of these districts, Democrats are a little behind on getting their ballots back, and so the ballots that are coming back are from older people whiter people, um, people who are not Democratic constituencies, and it's a little worrisome right now. So this is not th- – this is the time to start worrying about these California districts and this primary and this final stretch. And so if you have friends and their ballots sitting there in the mail or sitting on their counter and they haven't you know, worked on it yet, get those ballots in. Make sure your friends get your ballots in because another way – to make sure that we don't get locked out in these districts is to just have more Democratic voters. If we turn out more Democratic voters than Republican voters in some of these districts, we won't have to worry about the lockout problem. So the best way we can handle the easiest way we can handle it is to have as many Democrats voting as possible. And then the second thing we need to do is actually focus on the Democrats who have a realistic chance of winning these districts. When we come back, we will have Tommy's interview with John Legend. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. My guest is a Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and the founder of Free America, a nonprofit with the goal of helping end mass incarceration. He's also a dad two times. Yes, over. two times. Congrats. That was very exciting. Thank you. Thank you for making time, because I imagine uh, time is hard to find at the moment. Well, I'm not really working right now, so I have a lot of time, <laughs> but it's mostly spent at home, and uh, it's good. Good, We're, good. Raising a... A little brood now. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Um, you're also working with the ACLU on a campaign called Meet Your DA. Yes. Meet Your District Did Attorney. Did you say my name yet? I don't know if you introduced me. John He's... Legend. <laughs> yes, John Legend. I didn't say your name. I gave you titles, and I didn't say the name. <laughs> my guest is John Legend. He needs no introduction. <laughs> um, you're working on uh, this campaign with the ACLU called Meet Your DA. Meet yes. Your District Attorney. Uh, you describe them in a video you guys made as the most powerful elected official that you might not know. Yeah. So hopefully we start with some basics. Like, what does a DA do, and why do they matter so much to us? So everybody watches Law & Order, and you see what prosecutors do on Law & Order. Most of the time you see them arguing in court, and uh, you see this kind of equal adversarial relationship between right. the prosecutor and the defendant's lawyer. Um, but what really happens is almost every case that uh, is brought uh, in our criminal justice system is pretty much decided before it ever goes to court. So very few cases actually go to trial, and most of the kind of determinations of where it's going to end up are done by the district attorney. They decide what kind of charges to bring. They decide what kind of deals they're willing to offer to the defendant, um, uh, you know, in exchange for testimony or in exchange for a plea. Um, and they decide what kind of bail they're going to go for. Uh, and so we think of judges as making all the decisions, which kind of they do, and they stamp a lot of decisions, and they kind of make final approval. But most of the uh, the work and the decision-making and power is actually in the hands of the district attorney. So um, as we see even, you know, with, uh, with what's going on with the Russia investigation, with all kinds of things, we see that prosecutors have a lot of power. They decide what to really go after, and... Um, they make choices and, and, they, and they set priorities for their offices. And all we're saying in our campaign is pay attention to what those choices are, pay attention to what those priorities are for your local district attorney, and make sure they align with your values um, as, a, as a voter and, and, the, and the overall values of your community. Right. So you mentioned values and voters. Mm -hmm. Do you think people get that so much power is concentrated in the hands of these individuals? No, I don't. I don't know that I even knew that a, a few years ago yeah. before we started really getting into this project. When we started Free America, the, the first year we spent just listening and learning, we visited 
uh, jails and prisons. We went, met with district attorneys. We did a lot of reading and, and speaking with experts on the subject. And one of the areas that kept coming up was how much power the prosecutors have. And, and a, a, a lot of actual prosecutors will tell you that, and, but also people that want to reform the system will tell you that um, a, a high leverage point is thinking about who your district attorney is and making sure that they have the right kind of values uh, that uh, that emphasize doing what's best for the community. And if you think that your job as a district attorney is to get as many convictions as possible, lock people up for as long as possible, and then you have the power to do that, then that's what's going to happen. Um, but if you think that your job is more nuanced than that and you have different metrics by which you're judging your staff and, and your office's success, um, then you can come up with a, uh, with uh, solutions that are, are more community-oriented. Because the bottom line is we lock up way too many people in America. Uh, we're the most incarcerated country by far uh, around the world. And this costs us a lot of money. And every time we uh, send someone to jail or to prison, we're spending that money on uh, on those punitive measures rather than on schools or highways or all kinds of other things we could do to invest in making our community stronger and safer in other ways. And we're also not only uh, on the financial side, but on the emotional and societal side, we're saying um, we're destroying these families. We're saying this father or this mother is separated from their kids and and possibly kind of uh, creating a cycle where their kids get into trouble as well because they don't have a a parent at home that's uh, there to help out. Uh, all these other issues come from the destruction of all these families, and this has been a particular issue in, in minority communities, particularly the black community, where we're losing so many of the adults that could be in the, in the neighborhood and in the family uh, contributing to making the neighborhood a better place. And again, it's a choice we're making to invest in punitive measures rather than in uh, in things that are more edifying like schools and health care and, um, and you know, proper nutrition and all the other things that uh, lead to a healthy life that would possibly prevent people from getting in trouble in the first place. Uh, you guys made this video on meetyourda.org. Yes. Uh, you mentioned Prop 47 here in California, which is supposed to reduce penalties for non some nonviolent offenses, mm-hmm. but only two of 58 DAs actually seem to agree with the policy. Yeah. And when, how, how do they get away with that? Well, whenever whenever we... Uh, we do a lot of work around the country and and, and uh, assist uh, state and local organizations that are lobbying for change in one way or another. And almost every time, w- one of our biggest oppositions is the uh, organizations of uh, DAs. Uh, they are against uh, any changes that will give them less power to lock people up. Um, and anything that will reduce mass incarceration, they tend to be against. Um, and so part of our project is finding DAs, uh, people that will run for candidate, uh, for DA uh, candidates that will run for district attorney offices around the country and uh, find people that are more progressive. And so part of our project has been helping to find those people and, uh, and do what we can to raise funds for them. So I like that. So you talk about some good DAs that are out there. Um, You've talked a lot about uh, George Gascon in San Francisco, uh, Larry Krasner, Larry Krasner in Philly. In Philly. Yeah. Uh, we helped uh, we helped uh, with Kim Fox's election in Chicago, and these are all people that we um, met early on when they were uh, still running for office. Uh, not Gascon, we met him when he was already in office, but uh, we met several others uh, while they were running for office and th- decided that their program was something that we could sign on to and support, and then we helped support their. 
uh, electoral um, chances. And then once they got into office, we are been we've been paying attention to them to make sure that they live up to the promises they've made. And uh, we're really encouraged by what we've seen from Kim Fox and from uh, and from Larry Krasner. Um, and we, we've always looked at George Gascon as someone that's been a leader early on in being a more progressive uh, prosecutor. And you see what prosecutors can do because uh, in places like New York, some of them are saying we're not going to have cash bail um, right. for most uh, offenses that come across our desk. That's a big choice for them to make because bail is the, the, the biggest driver of the jail population because so many people are in local jails because they can't afford the 1000 or 2000 or $3,000 set by the prosecutor and the judge that says this is what you have to uh, to spend to to buy your freedom. Uh, we saw Harvey right. Weinstein could afford a million dollars the other day, but a lot of folks can't even afford $1,000. Yeah. Uh, and so they're basically locked up because they're too poor. And so they're locked up because they're poor. They can't afford $1,000. Maybe $500 is too much for some people. And then... If they do pay, it's usually through some kind of bail bondsman, which essentially has the same kind of ethical profile of of like a payday loan uh, type uh, institution. And then so they're stuck in debt and they have all these fees if they can't pay everything on time. And then they could get locked up again if they can't afford to pay back the debt. And so you're you're basically punishing people for being poor and you're making them poor uh, through that punishment. And then in addition to that, they usually will lose their job or, or, or their jobs in jeopardy because they're away from home for a while. And, of course, their family is going through all the trauma of dealing with their parent, one of the parents being away. So bail is a really big deal. And so for prosecutors to decide we're not going to uh, lock these people up because they're too poor to afford $500 or $1,000 bail, um, that's a big deal. And that's a choice that prosecutors can make independent of judges independent of all the other players in the system, they can make these choices uh, on a policy level. Um, and we have to pay attention to those kinds of policy decisions because uh, they really impact the jail population there, which in turn impacts uh, the way communities interact with the criminal justice system. You did a very cool video with colorchange.org, I think, yes. recently about yes. this problem that people should check out. Yes, that, that was all about the bail issue. We want to end money bail. And I think a lot of people, we're so used to the way America does things that we don't realize it's kind of egregious it's around crazy. the world. So the fact that we even have money bail is crazy. Uh, it basically says you're locked up because you're poor. Um, and these people haven't been convicted of anything. They're just accused. And in our system, they're innocent until proven guilty. But if they're poor, they can't afford to pay the amount that many of us could afford to pay um, just to go back home and, and go back to their lives and, and work. Some of them may be guilty and they may end up being convicted but some of them are actually innocent. Khalif Browder, uh, who's one of the people we talk about in the video, he ended up dying because of the trauma that uh, he went through being locked up at Rikers um, in New York. And he maintained his innocence throughout, even though the prosecutor uh, offered him all kinds of deals. He said, I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do. And the thing he was accused of wasn't even that important. It was a very minor crime. Uh, but he was maintaining from the beginning that I didn't do this. I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do. But he also couldn't afford bail. So he stuck in jail for years because he didn't get a trial and he didn't uh, agree to the deal. And eventually he committed suicide based on all the trauma that he went through uh, through our jail system. So our system killed Khalif Browder and the system of, of money bail c- killed him. And we want to prevent those kinds of things from happening. And prosecutors are a big key to making sure that those kinds of things don't happen because they have to use their dis- discretion in a way that's humane and just 
and uh, and and thinking about the the holistic needs of the community. Mm-hmm. And just to sort of play out what a good DA can do, I mean, I, I was reading about Larry Krasner. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he sent this five page memo to everyone who worked yes. for him, and one of the things he said was, if you're incarcerating a person in Philly. It costs between forty-two and sixty thousand dollars per year, yes. which is greater than the cost of a uh, beginning salary salary for a teacher, a cop, a firefighter, or even a prosecutor in his own office. Exactly. <laughs> and he said, if you want a three-year sentence for somebody that costs one hundred and twenty-six thousand dollars, you need to justify that cost to taxpayers. Like yes. That that is revolutionary sounding. It's revolutionary sounding, but you would think every prosecutor would think like this. Uh, You know, every time you decide to lock someone up, you're making a choice. You're making a choice about what kinds of priorities that the state and the the local government should have. And you're saying... you know, the, the economic term opportunity cost. Every time you spend a certain amount of energy or, or money or anything on one thing, then you're precluding uh, the spending on something else. And every time we spend all this money on punitive measures, we're, um, we're saying we, we're prioritizing these things over things that could be more edifying. Or preventative measures. Yeah, exactly. Education. Exactly. Um, uh, someone who was treated horribly by the criminal justice system mm-hmm. is Meek Mill. He mm-hmm. was going to meet with President Trump about prison reform, but decided against it. Mm-hmm. Apparently today, Kim Kardashian is going to meet with Jared Kushner and maybe yeah. Trump about the same issues. Do you think these meetings on a federal level are time well spent? Uh, and will we be reading any uh, thoughtfully written text messages from you on Twitter <laughs> uh, tomorrow about you know criminal justice reform? You know, I think they can be well spent because um, whether we like it or not, he's the president and his... his uh, the branch of government that he heads has a lot of power, though I will say the uh, local and state governments ha- actually have a lot more power when it comes to the criminal justice reform because so many of the people locked up are, are in local jails or in state uh, and county uh, facilities. So there is some power that the federal government has, and and uh, no bill will get passed and enacted into law without the president getting behind it. So if uh, people are going to meet with the president. Hopefully they are not ju- doing it just for uh, the photo op, but they actually will get some good policies passed that will actually help people. I'm not of the mind that just because you disagree with someone politically and, and you might think they're abhorrent and mm-hmm. think they're terrible for their office, uh, that you can't meet with them. But but don't let it just be a photo op. Yeah. Um, make sure you're getting something that will help people out of the, uh, out of the, uh, the meeting and don't be used um, to kind of uh, put a seal of approval or a stamp of approval on someone that uh, is pretty abhorrent otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening right now, the... <clears throat> uh, these guys have made meeting your DA really easy. John is not saying drive down to the DA's office. <laughs> say what's you don't up. have to go personally. You meet don't have them. to go do it. Personally. You don't don't get arrested just so you can meet. <laughs> yeah. Good tip. Um, so you go to meetyourda.org. You yes. type in your zip code, and it tells you how your DA aligns with voters in your area. So yes. my DA is Jackie Lacey. Yes, uh, I was disappointed to learn that she uh, she's obviously in Los Angeles, but yes. she opposed some sentencing reforms. She opposed giving more prisoners access to parole. Yeah, legalizing marijuana. So if someone is having that same experience yes. and they're kind of pissed off by the results, like, what do we do next? Well, pay attention to who's running against them. Um, right now, uh, it's it's hard for any individual to make a difference unless there's somebody that they can vote for that's an alternative. And so in some of these races, these DAs are running unopposed. And so that's an issue that um, deals with recruitment. And I think it's a larger issue for people that believe in the the, the reform movement uh, to deal with. And we are dealing with that. We're, we're looking at recruitment. We're, we're uh, um, investing in candidates that will uh, do the right thing. 
uh, but that's a, a kind of a bigger organizing process. But for a local voter, if there is an opposition, pay attention to what the opposition is saying and what they uh, intend to do differently. And then you have to vote. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's that simple. Uh, be an educated voter and then use that education to go out and vote. I, I try to read about all the local races uh, that are here in Los Angeles. And um, I'm a new, newly uh, minted California voter within the last couple of years. I used to vote in New York and I'm from Ohio originally. But, you know, pay attention to what's happening in your state and in your local area. And if there's an alternative for district attorney, then uh, pay attention to what they're saying and, and go out and vote because it, it actually does matter. And these vote, these DA votes are so under the radar that uh, a lot of people aren't paying attention and, and uh, a, a few votes one way or the other could make a big difference if there's an alternative. And that's a bigger issue of making sure that, that we actually have choices. Yeah. You've, you seem like you're focusing on a lot of issues that aren't like – that are under the radar, yeah. maybe because everything is in the Trump world. Uh, you wrote an editorial in the Columbus Dispatch recently about how your home state is one of the states that still hasn't abolished sentencing children to die in prison, life yes. in prison without parole. Yes. Again, America is egregious in this area, too. We're, the, I believe, the only country that has juvenile life without parole. That's yeah. saying a 16-year-old could get locked up with no hope of ever uh, getting out of prison and sentenced to die in prison. Despite all the things we know about uh, kids' brains at 16, how they're not fully developed and, and they have lack of impulse control and all these other issues, and, but we're treating them like they're full-grown adults at the ages of 14, 15, 16, 17. And the Supreme Court ruled that this was uh, cruel and inhumane, but it's, it's been some kind of gray areas around how that gets uh, implemented into law. And so we still have to go to these states and say, hey, you need to change this law to make sure that you kind of align with the principles of what the Supreme Court has ruled, which is saying that this is an inhumane and un, you know unjust punishment for, for young people to get sentenced to life without parole. Um, so, so you guys are focusing initially on these 13 states, right? Yeah, so that the Meet Your DA campaign is focused on these 13 states because kind of the uh, – uh, ACLU's assessment that these are the kind of the best targets right now based on local organizing and other things. But I think it's an important uh, message for everybody around the country to be paying attention to is that you need to know who your DA is um, and know if there's an opposition running against them and know what the differences are between them and then make a, an informed vote. Mm-hmm. Um, last sort of question on Trump is, is there a lot of us lately have been alarmed by this uh, zero tolerance immigration policy, and, and yes. it's now a choice to separate children from families as a deterrent to stop uh, undocumented immigrants from entering the United States. Clearly, this is being driven by his team uh, and their attitudes towards people of color, people from other countries. Like, what can we do, in in your opinion, to deal with the frustration, and how do we channel that rage? At decisions made by unelected people in some instances mm-hmm. uh, that are against our values, that are harming people, that are frustrating us generally. The most power we have is electorally. We have to vote in 2018 for um, a legislature that will uh, be a, a you know be a counterweight to what uh, the Trump administration is doing. Uh, there's a lot of things they can get away with as long as they're heading the executive branch, but there are a lot of ways we can hold them. Uh, accountable if we have a Congress that is willing to hold them accountable. And we are directly in, in control right now uh, as voters uh, who who is going to hold uh, 
President Trump accountable and Attorney General Sessions accountable. Um, if we get a Democratic Congress into office in 2018, then I think a lot of these issues we can uh, be a lot more uh, vigilant on. But as long as they control all the branches of government, we, you know, it's going to be tough to do any of these things other than protesting, other than uh, yeah. making a lot of noise, which I think is important, and tweeting about these things and making them subjects of conversation is important. But if we don't vote, if we don't have actual power, um, then there's not a lot we can do about it. So if you're living in California and you haven't voted yet, yeah, please. My wife and I already voted by mail. We tweeted it out a, a couple weeks ago, and uh, we want everybody to vote and, and be judicious about how you vote because of the way our primary system works in California. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of weird because it's nonpartisan, and you could have two Democrats at the top, or you could have two. Republicans at the top, you could have any kind of combination of those those outcomes, and you just want to make sure you vote for people that actually have a chance to win so that you're not wasting your vote. Um, and we want to make sure uh, we have, uh, you guys identified, what, seven or eight districts that we can flip, possibly? Yeah, we, there's seven districts uh, that Hillary Clinton won, but have a Republican member of Congress. Exactly, so that means we have the constituency in those districts to uh, turn them blue, and the only way we hold Trump accountable is turning them blue. As simple yeah. as that. Yeah. Last question for you. Yeah. I'm getting married in July. Okay. I'm making a band, a playlist for the band. Oh, yeah. I, I'm an expert in these okay. areas. Do you go with, like, the the classics that grandma's going to love, right? Like, you know, are you, like, Jackson 5, Earth, Wind, and Fire? Yes. Or do I say, this is my wedding, <laughs> and genuine? And 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 next had their moment, and too close is going to play too. Oh and man, that's just how it is. We were probably the same age. How old are you? Uh, thirty-seven. Oh, okay, I'm thirty-nine. So yeah, those songs were big in my youth as well. <laughs> so I think I think you just have a mix. That's I I don't believe in having. Um, personally, I didn't want a live band at my wedding. Really? Because I wanted the DJ to play so it, we'd have complete flexibility because, oh, I see that. because when you have a band and this is no shade against live musicians because I am one <laughs> and I, and I employ quite a few as well. <laughs> but I felt like having a DJ was the best thing because that way you get actual Al Green instead of someone covering Al Green That's and you true. get actual, you know, it's dicey. Beyonce instead of someone covering Beyonce. <laughs> so you're saying that a, 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 a cover of Pony might not be, I would rather have the the genuine article. <laughs> uh, that's great advice. But but it's up to you. Okay. And I, I don't want to put any live musicians out of work okay. because I think that is important too. But I I I liked having a DJ. We had Bismarcky as our Ooh. DJ, which you know that's a stunt. Sorry. That but is. <laughs> he was a very good DJ. He played a range. He played some you know Let's Stay Together by Al Green. He played some old school Earth Wind and Fire, and he played some old school hip hop. But he also played some new stuff too, you know. And so I think it was nice to have that balance. Did you get dragged out there? Um, I sang at the reception, like the dinner part of the reception, got it, got it. which was in a different location than the. It was all in the same property, got it, got but it. the uh, the dance party was in another room. And after after dinner, um, we all went over there. And so you worked your own wedding. 
Yeah, I, we, I did. <laughs> and Stevie Wonder did, too. Okay. That's another <laughs> All right, enough, All right enough name dropping. Uh, meetyourda.org. <laughs> yes. Check it out. It's really important. Check it out tomorrow if you're in California. Yeah, you, pay attention. And some of these, uh, you'll be frustrated because you're like, oh, they're running on a post. <laughs> but lesson learned. But but pay attention to them. And then, you know, hopefully as a as kind of an organizing thing that we all do who care about this issue will get more people to run for these offices and you've seen the big difference that uh, recruiting makes and, and energy makes on congressional elections because so many people are running in places where we thought we couldn't win before and so many people are motivated to make a difference now because their reaction to uh, the evil man in the White House um, so you know I'm optimistic that a lot of people are, are ready to fight back and make change and get involved in government and make a difference. Um, and we as voters, if we're not going to actually run for anything, the least we can do is pay attention and vote. It, it, it doesn't take that much, especially in states where you can mail in your ballot like we did. It's so easy. It's so easy. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Uh, thank you for doing the interview. Thank you for focusing on these down-ballot races because we spend so much time Yelling about Trump and frustrating yes. as we should, but this is so important. And you're right, Republicans have been laying the groundwork for decades. Yeah, they've been doing it. They've been doing the work, and 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 really, it's not even like a Republican thing with these DA races. The overall message for DA elections for decades has been tough on crime, yeah, tough on yeah, crime, yeah. tough on crime. I got this guy convicted, and I gave him this many years, and I put this guy to death, and um, we've only been rewarding people who say that they're the most punitive people possible. And so what I'm saying to everyone is let's re um let's reorient what our um incentive structure is for these DAs and saying we're not just rewarding you for saying you're the toughest, you're going to get the most convictions, you're going to you know lock people up for the longest amount of time because that's not actually what's best for our community and our society and the families that comprise our society. So um Let's get DAs that will do the right thing. And the right thing isn't always to lock people up for the longest amount of time. Right. Meetyourda.org. John Legend, thank you so much for doing the interview. Thank you. Thanks again to John Legend for joining us. Um, congrats again to you, Dan. Congrats to Holly. And, uh, and we will see you guys on Monday. Talk to everyone next week. Bye. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.